Welcome to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. I'm your host, Lisa Salberg, and in this edition of Tales from the Heart, we're going to hear a story from our HCM community, or also known as our Faces of HCM, and one of our HCMA ambassadors. Fritz, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Reinhard Kirchhoff, and people commonly refer to me as Fritz. That name was kind of coined to me because I'm originally from Germany, and they figured nobody remembers Reinhardt, so uh, they coined the name Fritz. I'm presently 73 years old. I reside in Howell, New Jersey. I have two boys that actually one is diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and I also have a grandson that's uh, diagnosed as well. And then, of course, it came down from my mother, and I'm assuming from my grandmother as well, from what I understand. So let's take a bit of a dive into the concept of familial heart disease and genetics. So it's 1996, and while I was in the middle of forming the HCMA here in New Jersey, you were elsewhere in New Jersey in a doctor's office hearing the words idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis, what we used to call hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Can you walk us through the diagnosis? What happened in the doctor's office that day? Well, I just had gone for a, a general physical because my, my father-in-law used a cardiologist because he had cardiac issues. So uh, I decided it's time for a physical. At that time, I was around 45 years old and never had really any symptoms. As a matter of fact, I was very active. I just had a slight slight murmur, which was picked up uh, many years ago. A matter of fact, when I went for the uh, military exam. But anyway, I went to the uh, physician's office and he did all the standard stuff, blood work. And part of the exam, since he was a cardiologist, was an EKG. So uh, after he did the EKG, he just kind of looked kind of perplexed. And he looked at me, he goes, have you ever had a heart attack? And of course, I was I was kind of stunned. I said, no, I've, I've never had a heart attack. I said, why? He says, well, it looks like you have an abnormal EKG and we're going to have to do some other testing, one of which was an echocardiogram. So uh, he also performed the echocardiogram. And at that time he says, well, looks like you have what they call idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis. It was kind of a shock because, uh, you know, I, I, I was never really symptomatic. I was always well, I considered healthy. I played racquetball. I did jogging. So it was a little bit of a shock to the system. They tell you you may have had a heart attack, which is something we hear a lot here at the HCMA, because when you have an EKG and you have HCM, it can look like scar tissue in the heart because it is, in some cases, this myocardial disarray can cause that myocardial infarct type looking. So it looks like you had a heart attack. But when we get deeper into it, we can see that there's hypertrophy and thickening and stiffening of the walls. At the time you were diagnosed in 96, did you know there was a family heart health history? Not at all. No clue whatsoever. I mean, my father always had heart issues, but the genetics really did not come into play till later on in my life. It was basically, he just says, well, you need to take some, some beta blockers, which at that time he prescribed a, a, a tenolol, a very common beta blocker. And I thought that I would not need it. So I, I basically, you know, continued on with my life. And uh, 
And it, it wasn't until a few years later where I started to become a little bit more symptomatic. And that's kind of when it, it kind of started to snowball and go downhill from there. So what kind of symptoms were you encountering? Well, later on in life, I started, uh, especially when I went to sleep at night, like a pounding heartbeat. And it was just pounding. And then I, I went to another, saw another doctor, and he says, well, you really need to start to take beta blockers to kind of relax the heart a little bit so it pumps more efficiently. And I started with the beta blockers. So Fritz, when did you first experience genetic testing? My genetic testing was in 2007. I was at uh, 56 years old. At that time, genetic testing was rather expensive, but I, I received a grant from one of the physicians at Hackensack University to do the genetic test. And uh, it came out positive for the uh, MYBPC3 gene. And that was basically 11 years after I was originally diagnosed. So then you had the opportunity, your parents were still living, and you had the opportunity to ask them to get genetic testing. And that was a little bit of a challenge back in that day to get that generation to embrace something like genetic testing, but you did it. Who ended up being genetically positive? Your mom, right? Yeah, well, after my genetic test, the first thing I did was uh, they recommended that I get my sons tested. And I had both of them tested. And uh, it's weird how the 50% rule came out because one son had it and the other one didn't. So then it was a chore to try to get my parents to be tested. And talking to them was a little bit like trying to talk to a rock. I mean, they, they, just, they, they just did not want to be involved in it at all. And I always thought it was my dad because my dad always had cardiac issues. And I figured, gee, it, it had to come up from my, my father's side and, and also his sister. My father's sister at about the age of 40 died of sudden cardiac arrest. Uh, she had gotten up yeah, she got up out of bed one morning and just stood up and dropped dead. So I figured for sure it was my father. So I finally convinced them my father was not the gene carrier. It was my mother. So she was positive. And I also found out my mother had two sisters. And the one sister lived in Germany. And just with speaking with her, I found out that she had some cardiac issues and she was on a very popular drug for uh, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which was verapamil. Later on in life, she ended up, uh, she probably had AFib and she, she ended up passing from a stroke, a massive stroke. So, but uh, it was two, looks like two sisters in my family. And I think my grandmother as well, if I think back, because she had cardiac issues as well. So it looks like that's, that's where the, uh, the gene came from. When we talk about family heart health history, even though you were the first person in the family identified with HCM, it was the opportunity to open the door and see who else in the family was affected. We've got an aunt, a mother, possibly a grandmother, mm -hmm. yourself, your children, mm -hmm. and potentially a grandchild as well, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. So this is an opportunity for us to shine a light on the importance of talking about family heart health history. You didn't know there was a problem until something was triggered in a clinical evaluation. And now you have the opportunity to diagnose and manage your own condition. I know you've been through a lot in the 28 years since your diagnosis. And I'm sure we can talk for hours and hours upon all the things that you've been through. But what are some of the 
I'll call them highlights, but they're lowlights of living with HCM. What type of challenges have you encountered due to your diagnosis? It's interesting because every year when I follow up, I do an echocardiogram and of course EKG. And every year I look at the report from the echocardiogram and it always says, well, there's been no change since the previous year. So when I'm looking back at 10 years worth of history and I always see, well, there's no change in my echocardiogram. However, every year, it seems like it gets worse and new things crop up. I mean, in the last couple of years, you know, I've had some real issues in regards to atrial fibrillation started to set in. You know, 10 years ago, I would start with AFib that would last for an hour and I would self-convert. And then a year later, you know, it might be two hours and then self-convert. And then a year later, it goes on and on to the point where three years ago, it just didn't leave. It was just 24 hours. And when you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and you have atrial fibrillation, the only way I can describe it is it's like a jackhammer in your chest. So, I mean, I am on medications now, and I mean, I've had two ablations, and I've been on medications for atrial fibrillation. But still, every day is a challenge. You know, I have to watch carefully what I eat. After I eat, I have to be careful not to walk or exercise too much because the chest pain just, just it, it's something, it's it, it, like a heart attack going up the stairs, you know, short of breath, all the usual symptoms. So what's interesting again is though, although the echoes have not changed, my sim- I've become more and more symptomatic as I grow older. I think that's a great point because we assume if we have a new symptom, we're going to be able to see the why when we look at an image, or we're going to be able to see it on an event monitor. And typically you know, the event monitors are going to show you if you're in sinus rhythm, if you're in atrial arrhythmia, if you're having ventricular tachycardia. And a lot of times our symptoms don't correlate to a rhythm problem. And when we look at our underlying hearts and you see the hypertrophy is there and it doesn't, hypertrophy doesn't keep growing and growing and growing. Some people think it does. You typically get to a certain point and it stays there. And in some cases, even as you get to advanced stages, it may even thin a little bit. But sometimes our symptoms don't even seem to make sense when you compare it to the image. And I think, sometimes I tell you my hypothesis, this is at least a hypothesis. Our heart just becomes tired of compensating for being so stiff and thick and not having the same volume as a non-HCM heart. And we just start to feel a little bit worse, a little bit faster. AFib on top of HCM, you're right, it's, it's a devil. Um, And I know all of you out there who have had atrial fibrillation on top of HCM with or without obstruction, you feel worse when you're in AFib because you lose the atrial kick. You don't have a good ventricular function because the heart's a little stiff on the bottom and it's a little wobbly on the top. And you put those two together, somebody who's short of breath, then you can't exercise or do normal activities very easily. So it's really important that you have great management for that. Over the past 28 years, you've been through a lot. Are there any moments that stick out in your mind of memorable things that were told to you or how you have navigated this journey? One of the most memorable things is uh, when I went to NYU Langone and saw Dr. Sherrod when there were not too many center of excellences in the country. I guess at that time, 
And correct me if I'm wrong, Lisa, there might have been maybe, what, three or four? Probably about eight at that oh, About eight at that time, yeah. One of them was in New York. I remember I went there for an evaluation uh, just to make sure because, I mean, my original cardiologist told me what I had, but I wanted to get to a center of excellence. And then I was sitting in my office at, uh, where I was working, and I got a call from Dr. Sherrod, and he just basically told me, he said, Mr. Kirchhoff, and quote, I mean, stuck in the back of my mind, you have a very sick heart, and you probably could have seen the blood drained, drain out of my face. You know, it was like a death sentence to me. But um, that was one of the most uh, memorable things, I think, uh, in this whole journey is just that diagnosis. But I think the important thing is here, you have to read, you have to learn, you have to look and study on, on what you have you know, as far as this, this disease, this genetic disease, and become educated. And if you become educated, it helps you cope. I mean, it's helped me to cope with it, uh, with the symptoms I have. I can understand what I'm going through, what to do, what not to do. So I think that's very important with this disease. And I think a lot of people, they don't under, understand this disease because I'll give you an example. You know, people look at me and they say, well, you look perfectly healthy, but I have a handicapped sticker. And I remember my, my mother-in-law one time, we went out to eat and I parked in a handicapped spot. And she says to my daughter-in-law, I says, what the hell is he doing? He's parking in a handicap. He looked per perfectly healthy. But you know what? It's, you can't judge a book by its cover. I mean, outside, I may look fine, but inside, there's a whole different story going on. I think that's an excellent point. You know, as I was waiting for my heart transplant, I had a handicap plaque as well. Some people had opinions about that. <laughs> and some complete strangers opted to share their opinions with my utilization of a handicap tag. So it may not have been my family members, but um, I, I will tell you a, a true story about handicap tags in New Jersey. I was walking from my car into an Acme in in New Jersey, and I parked in handicap because I was gonna be coming out with packages, so definitely needed like a little extra help from not having to walk so far. This is pre-transplant, Lisa. And, okay, this is not the most tactful thing I've ever said in public, but it was funny as hell. Guy looked at me and he goes, well, you don't look handicapped. I said, well, you don't look like an asshole. <laughs> That's a good one. And that was my Jersey girl, leave me alone yeah. moment. So, um, yeah, that one's going to get some comments, I'm sure. Good but one. he caught me off guard. I wasn't in the mood for it. And there you go. You get snapped back at. Another person once said something similar to me. And I said, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were at my last doctor's appointment. Were no. you not there in the room with me? And I just walked away from that one. So, Sometimes you got to use a little sarcasm. I'm really good at that one. Um, and a little bit of humor to get through some of these moments. So we don't look sick. We don't look like there's anything wrong with us because internally you can't, you know, you can't see somebody's heart and you don't know what it's like to operate with an organ that's not fully functioning the way it's supposed to be. And some people have minor symptoms, some people have major symptoms, and for some people it comes on progressively over life and things just change. Yes, maybe it gets worse, but I don't want somebody listening who's newly diagnosed thinking that it's doom and gloom in the future because you were diagnosed in the 90s, I was diagnosed in the 80s. Today is a different story. 
And we've worked really hard to change the narrative. We want people to understand things better, but we also have new technology, better diagnostics, earlier ability to see disease and treat it more effectively. We have new labeled indication drugs that are just for us, myosin inhibitors, mm -hmm. great concept, but they're not for everybody yet in HCM, but for some. And we're better at managing and predicting not only atrial fibrillation, but ventricular arrhythmias. So implantable defibrillators, anticoagulation, heart rate lowering medication. There's so many options for people today, but you got to know your anatomy. You got to know your risk profile and you've got to get to an expert. What would you say to somebody who is diagnosed today? I mean, I did a uh, speech to a captive audience of, I guess, roughly around 13 or 1500 people over the course of a couple of days, just trying to educate them on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And one of the interesting things that I went away from this was that I made the comment that, you know, at least one out of 250 people uh, may have this conditions. And it was surprising to me that at the end of these sessions, there were actually people that came up to me and said, geez, you know, my such and such has HCM or, or I've been diagnosed with it. So, I mean, when you think about one in 250, it's quite plausible. I mean, I, I, and I had very good reaction. People actually said to me, says, thank you so much for bringing this to our attention because it's not well known. That's one of my goals is really as an ambassador, I would say it's not the end of the world. There are many medications available. Go to a center of excellence. That is your best, best option. I mean, I've I've been through countless, countless doctors, and you know, you and they think they know everything about HCM. Well, surprise, they don't. So you need to get to a center of excellence where people are experienced with this disease. They know the proper treatment for it. They can help you, and I think you can live a, a long and fruitful life. I mean, my mother lived to ninety-two, and she has uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I love our octogenarians and beyond with HCM. We have many of them today, and I think that's a really important concept. You think about HCM, and you think sudden death and athletes. You think, you know, transplants in their forties and fifties. That's the minority of the population. So many people live long, high-functioning lives with HCM today. If we think about what we're doing today, what we can do in five and 10 years is even that much better. One of my favorite client comments to me many years ago, a woman called me up and said, I had my myectomy like a year ago, and I'm only able to get back to work three days a week, and I want to go back full time. She sounded a little bit older on the phone. And I'm like, okay, well, how old are you? And she told me age didn't matter. So I'm like, oh, we got a feisty one here. <laughs> and I asked her how long she'd been doing the job she was doing. And she had been doing the same job for 45 years. And I'm like doing the math. I'm like 45. Okay, if you started at 20, that makes you, you know, 65, not old. But then she explained to me her career path. And I'm doing the math. And I'm like, I, I'm well into my 80s here by my calculations. I'm like, honey, how old are you? And she's working three days a week and she just had heart surgery. She was 93 years old and she wanted to work five days a week. I'm like, girlfriend, chill out. Like, don't work your entire life, but that's what you wanted to do. 
She ended up staying on the three-day week, and I think she passed at the age of 97. She wins. She wins. And she did this with an HCM heart that needed surgery in her 90s. So you can live a long life. You can live the kind of life you want to live to a certain extent. You can't maybe do everything you dreamed of. I thought I'd be a marathon runner after my transplant. My knees and my ankles laughed at me um, and told me I was wrong. But you can do what you can do. And you can try to push the envelope a little bit if you're doing it with managed care at an HCM center. Today, Fritz, you're not in atrial fibrillation right now, correct? Yay. Yay. So you've had a couple of ablations. You're on medication. What else is involved in your daily therapy? I'm not an AFib. I just take my medication, which I'm supposed to take. You know, I do have some issues that uh, that crop up, but, you know, I manage them, like the chest pain, stuff like that. So I know, as I said earlier, you know, if I eat a heavy meal, don't go walking the dog. It doesn't work. So a matter of fact, if I do yard work or anything like that, I'll do everything before I eat breakfast. You know, I'll just keep uh, properly hydrated, drink water, properly hydrated, and I'll do my work. And I used to mow the lawn and everything like that. But like I said, if I have a meal, breakfast or something like that, I have an English muffin or a couple English muffins or pizza or something in the evening, don't go walking, don't do any kind of working, even walking up and down the stairs. There have been times where... You know, after dinner, you know, I'm watching the news and I, I said, well, I got to put the washing downstairs. So I run downstairs and I run back upstairs and then I sit there and then I just feel the pain coming on. I said, OK, stupid. You know what you did. And you are not a candidate for an implantable defibrillator, correct? Well, I've had three of them. Oh, I'm you have. The, you I'm forgot that part. One. No, I'm on my third one. The first one was in 2003 mm -hmm. uh, because I had some non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. No, at first I said, oh, God, this is the end of the world. You know, they're putting in a device in me and everything. So, but anyway, I had it done and it wasn't really no big deal. You know, I read all these comments on the web. They're saying, oh, they want to put an ICD in. And, oh, you know, I'm scared and I'm terrified and everything. It's, it's the best safety device you can have. And after you have it for a while, you don't even know you have it anymore. It just becomes part of your analysis. I was speaking to a young man this week who's getting a, he's going to get a first device at 17. And, you know, that's that's a lot for any 17. Oh, sure, it's yeah. a lot for anybody. And I'm like, believe it or not, at like six months, you're going to forget that it's there. Yeah. And he kind of looked at me like I was full of it. And uh, I hope his family has him listen to the podcast and he can hear from somebody else that when, once it's in, I mean, okay, it hurts a little bit and it's in, and then you get on with your life. It's not something you think about every day. Would that be a correct statement for you? Oh, absolutely. It's, it, it, it becomes part of your anatomy. Uh, you don't even know it's there and it's, it's helped me. I mean, fortunately, I've never been kicked in the chest with like a mule, so it's never gone off, but it's a safety device in case uh, I do have an event, a cardiac event, it's there. And with the beta blockers, you know, beta blockers tend to reduce your heart rate and they give you bradycardia. So I basically pace now at 65. So if my heart rate drops below 65, it stays at 65. If it goes above that, well, then my heart pacemaker uh, takes over. I'm basically, I'm paced about 98% right now. As a matter of fact, uh, you mentioned about the little bit of pain, a Tylenol, if that. It's not bad. And the last one I had put in, believe it or not, I wasn't even put out totally. It was just with some happy juice. I was awake. 
And I, I kept commenting to the doctor. I says, what the hell are you doing? It sounds like you're excavating over here, tugging and pulling. <laughs> but it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. You know, a couple of Tylenols and, and you're good to go. I had multiple devices in my HCM experience. I think five or six devices over my life. And I can remember this second or third ICD that I had. I got into the hospital for the replacement at six in the morning and I was home on our old message board, which will date this. And I was posting before noon. It was just pop it in, pop it out, yeah. go home. The first one's the hardest one. And then they just yeah. are so easy to replace afterwards. So you've been through a device, you've been through genetic testing, you're on medication, you've had ablations for your HCM and you're managing it. And you're out talking to people about your disease as an ambassador. And mm -hmm. probably one of the greatest gifts we can give to others is experience and, and sharing of information. And I, I really applaud you for stepping up to be an ambassador and to share your story. I know I created a little PowerPoint deck for you to go down to church with and, and educate those wonderful people. So I really appreciate all of that. And we look forward to you doing more and getting some other people involved and getting out into their grassroots community, talking to people about HCM. What you mentioned earlier about talking to a large group of people and then Ding, ding, ding. It starts firing for them all. I've been in that situation many a time. I remember once I was speaking at a meeting for the FDA about clinical trial design. And I was talking about HCM and I'm looking in the audience and I see a couple of very scared looking faces looking at me like, wait a minute, three people in that audience. There was like 700 people in the, on this event. Three people came up to me and said, that they either had HCM themselves or a family member had HCM or they were currently being screened for it. And you get them in every audience because we are everybody. We are everywhere. We do hold all kinds of jobs. We are all over the place. And you go into the mall and you look at people, you pass somebody with HCM, whether they know it or not. You go shopping, you go on a plane. There's probably somebody else on the plane too, right? So we're not that uncommon. We're here we can be managed and we're building more and more centers so more and more people can get close to home care. And if they can't, they can do something like the Lori Fund. If they financially qualify, HCMA will help them get to a doctor. We'll pay, we'll pay up to $600 a year in travel expenses to make sure that you're getting the best care possible. We want nobody to feel left out. We want everybody to be able to get to HCMA recognized center of excellence level care. You've seen how much that's changed over 26, 28 years. I don't remember the first time that I met you, but it has to be like 97, 98, if I had to guess. Yeah. yeah. It's been a long time. We've come a long way. Yeah. We've grown and, as an organization. Uh, I, thankfully, the HCMA has always been there for me. Yeah, we're kind of well-timed on that one. We came in but, at the same time. But uh, just a, a last, a uh, couple of last comments. You know, you mentioned like you find people with HCM in the weirdest places. The church I belong to, there's a deacon that is right across the street from me. We're good friends. I mean, we have known him for 25 years. And he recently, he was in for a, um, first they wanted to do a triple bypass and it ended up to be like, I think five. They did five bypasses. But after he went through therapy and everything like that, he still had shortness of breath. Well, lo and behold, they recommended him to see a center of excellence in Morristown and mm. saw Dr. Martinez <laughs> and he has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Now, who would have known? Uh, statistically speaking, it's kind of unusual. One of, out of my first 
office window, I could see three houses and one of the houses had a family with HCM. So you never know how far, or how close, mm-hmm. but I think you bring up a really good point there and we'll kind of end on this point and I'm sure we'll have other conversations, but some people will tell me, well, I don't have HCM. I had stents put in and I'm fine, but I still have symptoms. Mm-hmm. A lot of times somebody will complain about chest pain or pressure. They'll get a cardiac catheterization. There will be some blockages because they have some blockages, but that's not where the symptoms are coming from. So Mm -hmm. maybe they'll get some stents to open up those vessels and then they find the HCM. But sometimes if you're seeing the same doctor who did the stents and they're like, I gave you the treatment, we're done. And they're not looking at the heart muscle. Mm -hmm. They're only looking at the vasculature. They're going to miss the HCM. So if you're still having symptoms after stents, please see a cardiologist who specializes in non-invasive imaging. So good echo, good MRI. Let's get some good pictures of the muscle and measure it and see what's going on. We know that you can have coronary artery disease and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And that's one of the other reasons it's really important to know your family heart health history and get the right therapies for you at that time. And on that note, Fritz, I'm going to say thank you so much for joining us for Tales from the Heart. Thanks to the sponsors of Tales from the Heart for allowing us to share these amazing stories. And Fritz, any last comments before we end for today? Just, you know, be well, take care of yourselves. And if you, like I said, don't be fearful of the disease. Be your own best advocate. If you, you know, if see a center of excellence and then get treatment for it. And I'm sure you can live a long and healthy life. I agree. That's what our goal is. Long and healthy lives for all. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. We'll be back with you again in the future with new episodes and new share your story segments from lots of different perspectives from HCM warriors around the world. 